This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 150, part two. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman. And chances are, if you listen to episode 150, part one, you already heard a lot of the explanation and background to this episode. And obviously, this episode is the second half of my interview together with Mark Passamanic, which is just a great interview. I know you guys are going to love, especially the second half, as we get into some really great content. And uh, before I get too far, today's episode is real simple. Today's episode is brought to you by Carbon Arms. So thankful to Mark for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on and join join us for this show. And so Mark is the owner of Carbon Arms. They make great quality products for competition shooters, especially if you use a shotgun, if you're in a three gun uh, or, or whatever. Great shell carriers and shell holders. They've got uh, chest rigs. They've got belt rigs. And their pinwheel products are a popular one for the belt. Their chest rigs, I mean, you can hold 24, uh, 48 <laughs> shells if you need to. And as a three-gun competitor myself, there's been times I've needed 48 rounds to get through a single shotgun-only stage. That could be really intense. Now, I know not many of you may be competitive shooters, but uh, Carbon Arms also makes great uh, uh, compensators for your AR-15s, both the uh, 223.556 caliber as well as 308 caliber. So you might be interested in that. Uh, shotgun tube extensions, all kinds of really great quality gear. And so we thank Mark for, for doing this show with us, and I hope that you take time to go over to carbonarms.us and check out his gear. And so... Let's go ahead and get into the conclusion of this interview with Mark Passamanic. I hope you enjoy. I'll catch you on the other side. Enjoy. Most people do not shoot enough to make the shooting aspect or even things as simple as performing reloads, uh, malfunction clearing, stuff like that. They don't do it enough to make it automatic. Sure. And so this is a perfect juncture, I think, to transition into what I told you earlier would be the kind of the core, the meat of, of today's episode, which is to talk about uh, this idea of cognitive stack and how our brain works and what it means for us when uh, when we can understand con- you know our cognitive stack and, and our stacking abilities and what our limitations are. Right. And thus, what we must do to try to get around some of that or at least uh, use it use our cognitive abilities, our potential there the best way we can, the most effectively we can. Sure. And so let's get into that. Uh, Cognitive stack. Uh, Probably a lot of people are listening and have never even heard of that before. Yeah, and there's a whole area of human factors and a whole area of behavioral sciences that deals with cognitive ability and degradation of your cognitive ability. Um, and, and maybe I should just explain what cognitive ability is. I mean, you can have your cognitive ability test tested in a bunch of different ways. I mean, there's online tests you can do. And, you know, when people have, um, you know, concussions and brain injuries and things like that, they do cognitive tests on them. Um, so it's your ability to reason and solve problems. 
And so when I look at it from the shooting perspective, when I talk about the cognitive stack, what I've come to is a number of five. You can have five things in your cognitive stack. Most people, some people can have a couple more, some people a couple less. Depends on a lot of things, and we'll talk about the degrading factors. Mm. But if if the weapons manipulation, the draw, the shooting, the sight alignment, if all those things are part of you already and you don't need to think about them, then all of your cognitive ability can go to target identification, threat assessment, um, peripheral vision, footwork, finding cover, finding concealment, um, communication. Um, you know, I, I tell people that, and I say that number of five, the cognitive stack, if I put communication in, the cognitive stack goes to four. Because communication mm-hmm. takes not only mental processing, but verbal processing. And if you have to listen, maybe we're down to two or three. Right. Because you, you have to use those functions. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that. And, you know, I'm going to give you an example maybe that people will understand better. You know, there's a lot of debate about um, texting and driving, using your cell phone and driving. Well, the fact of the matter is that most people can pay attention to their driving. They can pay attention to a mirror and out the front of their window. But when they become distracted by texting or talking on their cell phone or playing with their radio, while they may still be looking out the window and there are some indicators that if you're a highly skilled driver will give you feedback that, hey, I need to change what I'm doing. At some point, you lose that ability to identify aberrations, okay? The soccer ball going across the street that's going to be followed by what? A kid. Yeah. Um, That's the whole thing about motorcycles and bicyclists. The reason we don't see them and the reason we hit them, people look, when I do accident reconstruction, I will talk to people and they say, I looked and he wasn't there. Well, sorry, he, he was there. You didn't recognize it because you, what are you looking for? You're looking for your self-preservation. I don't want to get hit by a semi or a Yugo and anything in between. <laughs> but you're not. there's no fear of being hit by a pedestrian or a bicyclist or even a motorcyclist. And so because they are in the anomaly, if our attention is distracted, that's why we have a higher incidence of fatalities and impact with these smaller vehicles. So yeah. that's that's a transference from forensic engineering to <laughs> self-defense shooting. Right, right. So I love this idea of, you know, recognizing that we have this, this stack uh, and you know, we can put a handful of things into that stack, meaning a handful of things that we can be using cognitive processing ability on. And let me use, I'll kind of use an example as an instructor, and I'm sure you've seen this many times yourself. In fact, I know you have. A lot of times with a newer shooter, uh, let's say they're brand new. Like just last week, the guy introduced, they've taken their first handgun safety course. They've just learned, you know, trail firearms as though they're loaded and other, you know, basic firearm safety rules. Those are all, well, well, for many of us, we think of those rules as being probably pretty simple, basic, common sense uh, almost. But for someone that's new to it, they've never been exposed to it, they're not familiar with the concept of, of a gun. I mean, one of the rules I see broken all the time, well, there's really two. It is the direction that muzzle is pointed in and it muzzling somebody or something that you don't want to be muzzled. 
and the trigger finger going on the trigger. Yep. Right? I mean, even if we've never touched a gun in our life, subconsciously, it's been ingrained in us that when we grasp a handgun for the first time, where that index finger goes is on the trigger. Well, it, the, the guns are designed ergonomically. Yeah. I mean, your finger wants to be on the trigger. That's yeah. where it's supposed to be from an ergonomic design. Right. So that that's an anomaly. I mean, you, you have to think, I need to keep my finger outside the trigger guard. And so, yes, that's, yeah, yep. exactly right. Yep. And so with regards to this this concept of, cog- of you have a cognitive stack and you have a cog- cognitive limitation, a newer shooter, brand new to it, they're using parts of that thinking, oh, finger off trigger, muzzle direction, you know, all this stuff that an experienced shooter just, it becomes automatic. Right. You know, I pick up the gun, it's in the hand. Based on where this goes, I know where my muzzle is pointed, I know where my finger is in relation to the trigger, and that just happens automatically. But for a newer shooter, it's not automatic. Sure. And And now you throw at them, uh, now I need you to align your sights, uh, put it on the target, you know, we stand a certain way. We can grip yeah. pressure. <laughs> grip a certain way. And like, poof, you just overloaded that stack. Right. So, I mean, that, that's one reason when we go to the competition realm, when we have the new shooters, we tell them, don't worry about your score. Don't worry about your time. Don't worry about moving your feet fast. Mm-hmm. Worry about the 180. And some, some of your listeners may not comprehend what the 180 is when I say that, but... Uh, in the competition realm, if we're on a square berm, we have a 180-degree plane where the muzzle needs to be always pointed downrange. We don't ever point it uprange. Even though you may not be muzzling somebody, it's an additional safety factor that we put in for competition. Right. Um, keep your finger out of the trigger. Um, safety. Um, one of the things that I see more often than anything else with new shooters is putting their weak hand on the front of their holster and then literally muzzling their weak hand as they go to put their gun in their holster or even draw. Yeah. And so that's a very common um, thing. But yeah, if you think about the four laws of gun safety and I've got trigger discipline, um, for most new shooters, that's going to be about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked about some of the, you can go to a PRS match or a three gun match, have never shot any kind of competition. You literally could have bought your guns yesterday. And I've seen this. I've actually saw a guy show up and he opened up his DPMS rifle case and it's still in plastic and he wants to shoot a three gun match. <laughs> I'm like, uh, have you ever shot it? Nope. Have you sighted in? Nope. Let's go work on that. Yep. So, so, you know, I took him aside and we spent an hour making sure his gun was cleaned properly lubed, properly sighted in, put together, and then we spent some time on the shotgun and some time on the pistol, which he was more familiar with. But it was it was a long process to get him to where, hey, now you can understand what you need to do to shoot a match. Yep. Yep. And, and my fear is that I see that so much in the competition realm. I don't know who might be listening, but I bet you got somebody listening who went and bought a gun shot at the range a couple times and now it's in their dresser drawer, maybe in their truck console, maybe even in a holster. They don't practice. Mm-hmm. That's to me as a firearms enthusiast is the scary part is they haven't put in the work to get past that. I don't know all the new stuff. And when they get met with a threat or a situation, they haven't ever planned what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And, and, 
So obviously, if we have a threat or if we're competing, this is one of the reasons why I like competition is that it's a it's a great test of shooting abilities as well as cognitive processing. I mean, like as far as like problem solving and thinking and, and figuring out this is how I'm going to shoot a certain stage or whatever, right? Sure. You've, you've got all that going on and then you're put on a clock and you're worried about time. You're trying, you want to be fast. You want to do well. Uh, maybe you're worried about scoring because especially if you're shooting USPSA, you, you know, you want to, you want all A's, everything in the A zone. Uh, you've got all this stress added to that and it becomes a great test. And so in, in, in a defensive world, you've got a threat and because because of the nature of a threat, you automatically have induced stress. Yep. And, and you have induced stress. And when that adrenaline dump comes, your cognitive stack of five, I don't care who you are, is going to get shorter. Yeah. I don't know how much shorter, but it's going to get shorter. And, you know, when I was doing a lot of CCW teaching and I would, I would tell people like, look, if you don't know how you handle stress, go get stress. And I told me, it was like, Hey, if you never jumped out of an airplane, go jump out of an airplane with an airsoft in your backpack. And when you hit the ground, take your airsoft out and see what you can hit. <laughs> and people laugh, but yeah. hey, it's a good, if you're going to jump out of an airplane <laughs> anyway, why not, why not test it? You know, um, you know, I remember circumstances from racing, whether they, whether I was working on safety crews and it was crashed. I mean, Don Gay Jr. crashed his funny car. I was there. I was working at the track. I was close. And I remember the adrenaline dump. Um, I remember various crashes that I had as a, as a racer. And you remember those adrenaline dumps. And they have affected me differently over the years. As you learn how to handle the adrenaline dumps, you process them differently. Um, some people, it becomes scary. You, you start to crave the adrenaline dump. <laughs> and then, so it depends on your personality some. Sure. But, um, you know, it, it used to be you hit that adrenaline dump and, you know, if you got listeners that are listening, it's like something happens, something freaks you out and you get that immediate tightness in your back. And then 10 minutes later, it's a little bit of pain in your back. And then 15 or 20 minutes later, you get a little bit of a chill. Well, that's adrenaline going through your body. And what happens is after you expose yourself to adrenaline enough times, your body starts to manage it better. And so... To me, that's why the competitive shooting is good. I mean, every time I go to the line, my pulse goes up a little bit. I'm getting a little bit of adrenaline. It's not the same as the first match I shot. Yeah. But I'm getting a little bit of adrenaline, a little bit of managing that, a little bit of stress. And since I'm you know, more competitive, um, depending on who I'm shooting with, it's like I want to beat that guy too. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, there's benefits to it. I, I won't say that competitive shooting cognitive stack and adrenaline dump is equivalent to being presented with a lethal threat, but you can learn things about yourself by doing so. Yeah, that's, it's very true. Uh, I've seen that myself. Um, I'm a lot calmer now than I was a year ago. And speaking of which, you know, so I met you because of American marksman, which I was a competitor in, went to nationals. And what I learned about myself at nationals is, there were competitors there that were better prepared than I were there probably some better than me as well as far as their actual shooting ability. Yeah, probably, but there were definitely some there that 
we're better prepared to handle the stress. Sure. You know, like I remember the first time I got on the line and I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> you know, like it you hits your you heart, and you're like, the heart's beating in your ears. Oh shoot. Oh shoot. <laughs> you know, you want to do, you want to do well, you know? And yeah, I was that way too at regionals, but I guess I, I don't know. I got through regionals. Okay. <laughs> but it was, you know, stressful. And now you shoot a couple of major three guns and, and some local matches and it's, I mean, yeah, it's still there. I mean, you're right. Every time you go to the line, get a little bit, you know, of a, of a, of a rise, but it's instead of 180 beats per minute, it's maybe 150. Right. Which is a lot more manageable. Right. But, uh, and, so, and so when you we transfer that to a threat situation, your mind is going, I know how to shoot, know how to line the sights, I know how to move my feet, I know how to do all this other stuff. That happens instantaneously. Yeah. You don't think about those things. So your pulse rate will be a little bit less than it had been if you had not been trained. Um, and yeah. when I say trained, I'm saying having put yourself through the competitive um, realm in shooting, it, it's it's going to help. It's yeah. going to help you say you're going to be more apt to be able to identify threats, um, ancillary f- threats, um, you know, all those other yeah. things that you need to deal with. Now, one thing's for for sure, regardless of its competition or defense defensive shooting, is that, like I alluded to earlier, the shooting skills, as much as possible, those have got to be they got to happen automatically. How, how does one get to, I mean, at first everything's in the stack, right? You're first, you're learning, you're learning the grip, you're learning the stance, you're learning trigger control. How do we get to where it, it no longer has to take up space in a stack? It, it's repetition. Um, you know, and there, there are books out there that you can read. Um, you know, I'll mention a couple books, you know, you know, Lanny Basham, you know, with winning in mind is, is a book that talks about um, practice. Um, the Talent Code um, is by Coyle. And I don't agree with all those precepts, but it talks about deep practice and igniting passion in, in various sports. Um, and, you know, another one is Brian Enos. Um, and, you know, his book, people say it's more the Zen stuff, um, but there's really all three of those books are written by very successful men who understand that it takes significant amounts of proper practice to have a proper skill. One of the problems we see in competitive shooting environments, especially in the last 10 years, is there is so much garbage in YouTube and Facebook that are people who have shot one match that are now giving advice. You have to have proper practice in order for it to become ingrained. So I hate dry fire. I absolutely hate dry fire. And for years, I think I did dry fire wrong. I did dry fire, draw, shoot, one shot. Show me a match scenario where I draw and shoot one shot, put my gun back in the holster. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen. So, you know, now my dry fire is draw and I'm, I'm moving while I'm shooting a target. Um, I've actually picked up different guns. I'll shoot a revolver in dry fire or I'll shoot a, um, a double action gun in revolver so that I don't have to stop and reset the slide. Mm-hmm. To me, resetting the slide is bad juju. I mean, I don't want to reset the slide because the cartridge is going to do that. Yep. So I develop different tools in order to be able to do that. I also use BB guns and airsoft. I've got moving blankets that I'll hang from in the basement 
and I'll put the paper targets up on the moving blankets and I'm doing drills with an airsoft gun that has the same frame basically as I shoot in competition and I'm doing all my same drills. I'm not shooting actual cartridges, shooting airsoft. Yep. Before airsoft, I use the rubber X-ring bullets that are basically primer fired out of your revolver. That's what I used mm. because I really got to the point, I'm like, this dry fire that I'm doing is not good. And so there's some good dry fire books out there now. There's, a, I think people generally have improved that. Um, but even on rifle, I do dry fire on rifle. Um, you know, several thousand presses a year on bolt guns, dry fire on this table. <laughs> Looking out that window. Um, Do your neighbors know that? <laughs> <laughs> there's one neighbor who's got exactly the 300 yards. He's got his, you know, the the number sign on his garage. So, um, but it, it takes repetition. It takes yeah. repetition that's proper. Um, you know, and, and that's just things about moving your feet. You know, new shooters, I see things where they take their feet and they cross their feet over. And they're they're aware of their feet when they're doing some drills and some practice and I'm like, can't cross your feet, can't cross your feet, can't cross your feet. I get them to not cross their feet. And then I put them into a drill mm. with a timer. And they cross their feet and fall down. Yep. And so, you know, and, and that's very applicable in the defensive world. Sure. I mean, as a law enforcement instructor, a uh, handgun instructor, I mean, we talk about that all the time. It's like, don't cross over those feet. You're going to go down. Right. Especially when you're in a rush. Right. You're trying so, to get away from a threat and you're, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> in one of my books, I talk about using a water bottle and people have gotten it wrong. Um, and one guy got it wrong enough that made me laugh about it. But just, just take a water bottle. Just walk around your house holding a water bottle or a cup of water an eighth of an inch down from the rim and walk around the house holding that out like you're holding a gun and keep the water from splashing out. That starts to give you some kind of risk reward of how fast can you go and not spill the water and spilling the water is a penalty. I mean, that's the way you have to look at it. Yep. You know, okay, my hand got wet, big deal. No, don't look at it that way. I spilled the water. That's bad. Um, and so if you can put those kind of things into your training to work on the footwork and, you know, work on the dry fire practice and do those things when I'm done with, when I'm done shooting a target that I want to shoot in dry fire finger goes off the trigger out on the side of the frame, you know, when I holster, I holster the same way. Um, and I'm not looking for my holster. It's in the same place, set up the same way. Even if I'm shooting different guns in different divisions and different classes, that holster is really close to the same exact spot. Mm -hmm. And I sacrifice a little bit of speed in USPSA by putting my holster where I want it for everything. So, you yeah. know, it's just the way I do things. Um, if I was only doing USPSA, maybe I would go with more of a race holster, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah, so. that makes sense. Mm. What are, I mean, so we know there's some problems uh, when someone experiences a cognitive overload. Sure. Um, there's some safety issues, obviously, uh, whether it's defensive or competition. Um, we see disqualifications in the competition world. We see accidental or negligent discharges sure. that sometimes occur because someone gets too overloaded cognitively. Right. Um, I find that we need to recognize, obviously, the, the dangers of cognitive overload. 
as far as it relates to safety. Uh, we don't want our shooters. We don't want our students. If we're instructors, we don't want safety issues occurring uh, because that's just no fun. But I, I also think that understanding uh, cognitive stack, cognitive overload can sometimes be a useful tool um, to testing one's ability uh, you know, to, to kind of see where we're at. Sure. Or if we're testing a student and we're confident in there, you know, we know the safety happens automatically. We know, you know, uh, for the most part, shooting is, is pretty automatic with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I mean, do you, do you see that as well? Do you use that to your benefit in your own personal training or as you train others? Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you've got a guy who, or, or gal, who's advanced to a certain level and you want to, you want to push them to the next level, you start inducing extra stressors. Yeah. Like, um, you know, we shot the Wyoming Ma um, Magpul Governor's Match. Yep. That whole thing of the target colors was intended to be mm. an additional stressor. That, that's the whole point of that type of stage, to create an additional stressor. Yep. So. For it, some people, it was reading that uh, right briefing. Right. That started right. that stage. So, depending on what I'm doing, in the competition world, the additional stressor becomes, all right, I know that in order to save myself 1.2 seconds, I need to set up exactly right here so I can eliminate that target, shoot that target, and save shooting it from another position. But that's something I have to be thinking about as I'm approaching that position. So what, what do I need to do in my stage plan to give me a flag or an indicator shift processing to hitting that mark? You'll see some people go and they make sure the RO is not looking. They'll put a mark on the ground or they'll leave a shotgun shell there. As an RO, if I'm seeing that, I go walk back and I move it. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to alter the ground, right? Um, but the, that's as you increase in your skill level, your stage plans in competition can become more specific, more detailed. Um, you, you increase your risk-reward type of stage plan to where okay you've heard hero or zero there are some stage plans that if you can execute it you have a good chance of being in the top 10 in the stage overall if you don't execute it you got a 50 percent yeah and so that's that's that pushing that pushing harder um on the tactical side what i typically will do in a class halfway through the class when the students don't know what's going on is i'm like all right, and I make sure everybody de-guns, guns in the bag, ammo's in the bag. Um, we're going to take a break, and I want to have you do some just real light calisthenics, and I want to see what you can do afterwards. So I'll make sure nobody has a gun on them um, and have them run 100 yards and come back. And then I will put two airsoft guns down and go, you over here, you over here, take out the threat. And they freak out. So it's that you got to be careful that you don't compromise safety. I'm not a mm -hmm. proponent of having live right. guns when I'm doing force on force. But what's that additional stressor? And it depends on what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, but, yeah, creating that additional stressor. Some people like to take targets and, you know, make the target so that one has a face on it and one has a hostage face on it. For some people, based on their personal makeup, that's an additional stressor. For me, it's worthless. 
if I'm shooting at a target that's got a bad guy and a lady next to it, I'm going to shoot the same target the same way. It, it doesn't, it's not an additional stressor for me. Mm-hmm. For some people, it will be. So that's where as an instructor, I want to understand my student, know my student. And I don't want to say on the fly because that might make it seem that it's haphazard. But I really want to say, what is a drill? What is a stressor that I can put onto this student that's going to help them understand what their cognitive stack is? Um, So a lot of times it's, okay, we're shooting. Now we're shooting and moving. Now we're shooting and moving and hitting a moving target. And you just keep adding those stressors until you see them break down. And usually, we talked about it before, usually what that breakdown is going to be, that we can't we can grip pressure is going to go away. That's the first thing that you see in decent shooters when they start to break down. Um, I, I do a, I used to do a match called the mega stage match. Have, have you ever heard about I've that? I've heard of it. And it, it's like eight minutes of shooting and 200 and some odd targets and it's shotgun, pistol, rifle, and precision rifle. And what was interesting, you're running several hundred yards and shooting a lot of targets. There's a lot of stuff to keep track of. And don't let new shooters do it. I only let experienced shooters do it. But what's interesting is somewhere between 180 and 250 seconds, even my very physically fit, really put well together, you could see their mannerisms start to change. Mm. You could see that they weren't processing the same. Um, and, And that is that whole match was a stressor in order to push you beyond what you've ever done in competition, what can you do when you're really maxed out? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll broach another subject and you want to stop me and go back and talk about some of the other, but you've got what breaks down your cognitive stack. Um, being out of shape, when you have physical exertion, you, you start to worry about the machine and the machine starting to fail. So that takes cognitive stack. Um, hydration, nutrition, um, mental fatigue, um, emotional fatigue. Um, if you're thinking about other things, that becomes a problem. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm sure with law enforcement that has been taught significantly over the last 20 or 30 years is at the end of your shift, you go home. And, you know, some people will say, well, what's that one thing that you think of when you're stressed? Um, you know, I think about my wife or I think about my kid or I think about my dog. I think about my family. A lot of times that's that touchstone that you can go to calm down. Maybe you can add something back into that stack. But all those factors become an issue. And, you know, when I deal with this in the forensic engineering community, you know, when there's an accident, an industrial accident, usually there is something along the way where there's an anomaly. And because it's become too routine or because they're talking on their cell phone or because they had a bad day, you know, the day before, that anomaly doesn't get caught. Right. And that's the whole cognitive stack thing. And so when you come to the tactical environment, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the color code, you know, from white to black. Yeah. You know, Jeff Cooper's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My wife says I've never been white my whole life. I've. I'm a yellow and orange person all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that whole scan, you know, are you scanning all the time? Are you paying attention all the time? When you're tired, when you're upset, when you're weak, and you're out in public, 
You're not looking for threat indicators. You're not looking right. for that type of thing. Hey, what's that? What's that thing that's wrong? What's that thing that's anomalous to what's going on here? What's that one guy who keeps looking over his shoulder or he keeps looking back at the one spot? Something's wrong. And as humans, we're pretty good at picking up something that's wrong. However, our current culture has conditioned us to say, don't profile. There's political and moral implications to that, obviously, and I get that. But when you see something that's wrong, that's anomalous, right? that's when you kind of got to go, I'm going from yellow to red, or I'm going from you know yellow to orange, whatever, whatever is, is appropriate for the condition. But there's also that, how do you deal with the threats, but how do you deal with protecting yourself? How do you deal with your family, with your family? Um, that's why you know some instructors have taught, started to teach this whole lock on or latch on. Have you heard that concept? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, now you've got another stack. You've got mm-hmm. your cognitive stack. Now you've got your stack of, of family behind you locked on. Well, the whole theory of them locking on is you take them out of your stack. You don't have to pay attention to them. They're locked on to you. And that's a benefit. So, you know, it, it all it all comes down to if we can eliminate something from the stack that has to be done anyway, be through repetition, through control of environment, um, through dry fire practice, through competition. In my book, it's all mm-hmm. good. Yeah, is mental rehearsal part of your strategy in, in that overall? Uh, game plan? Yes and no. When I'm shooting competition, yes, it is some. I do not go nearly to the depth of stage programming as some of the top competitors do, and there's some reasons for it. Um, I more focus on, you know, what are the what are the mistakes that are possible in this stage plan. What are the areas where I need to be completely focused? Um, so in a three-gun stage, I need to be completely focused on target ranges if the targets are beyond 250 yards. Yeah. Okay. If there's two targets and they're at 330 and 350, in my brain, I say there's two 340-yard targets. Yep. If I've got targets that go from 230 to 260, I go, I'm doing my 250 hold. So I try to group those targets into groups. I try to put them into clusters. Um, so sometimes there's cluster A, cluster B, and then a 415 and a 550. Okay. But when I get to those targets, I know I only need one hit. Speed is not really a factor anymore. It's perfect trigger press. So I shift gears based on what the stage plan calls for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a jungle run, yeah, I'm walking that. As many times as the as the match, RO official, whatever will let me, and memorizing target locations mm-hmm. if it's a jungle run. Um, so it somewhat depends on the stage, um, somewhat depends on the type of match that I'm shooting as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Have you ever considered? I mean, uh, doing mental rehearsals even in a tactical or defensive well, sure. sort of way. I'm just sure. curious what your thoughts would be on that. You know, one of one of the when I first started teaching there wasn't a lot of the stuff out there now that yeah. is out there. So I wrote my own textbook and I still use it. But one of the things that I talk about in my textbook is 
you have to let other people that you're with on a regular basis know the proper parameters. For instance, um, you know, if we were going out to dinner, I'm not sure I would have to talk to you about it because I think you'd understand this. But if I go out to dinner with someone who is who knows that I have a firearm and they know that I'm a shooter and I know that they don't understand the concepts, I will say something to them to the fact, just for your information, we don't talk about guns out in public. If something happens, don't acknowledge anything about me having a firearm. And yeah. the theory is, I don't want to become identified, you know, by somebody freaking out and going, Mark, do something. You've got a gun. Because I mean, <laughs> now, yeah. who's the target? Me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the target. I want to be the one who gets to process at my speed the way I want to process it. So, yes, I do that. I also talk about doing scenarios. I mean, sitting with your friends that you're with on a regular time and say, so just for instance, if we were at Southwest Plaza and we're in the center court and you hear a gunshot from above, what do you do? Yeah. And I just ask that question. And that, yeah. that old crap, 30 second long silence means you haven't thought about it. Um, driving is a good, you know, issue. You know, when I drive, I'm, I'm one of these guys, I'm checking the mirrors all the time. And, you know, you can actually kind of get an attitude of a car. You know, if, if someone is drifting over in a lane and you can see they're, they're like, they're kind of creeping in your lane a little bit and they're right on the bumper, you can tell, okay, that guy wants to make a left lane change. I'm going to give him a little bit of room. Let him make a life left lane change. Um, it's the same thing with people. You can kind of perceive what's anomalous and that's why you plan those scenarios yep. and, and you, you talk through, what do you do? And I will freely admit that my, um, indicators have changed over the years. My, uh, propensity to become involved in a situation has changed over the years. Before I was married, if I saw somebody stopped on the side of the road with their hazards on, I was the guy that would stop. Hey, do you need gas? Do you need help? Can I change a tire? You know, what's wrong? I would I would fix problems. Once I got married, I'm like, oh, I need to be a little more careful. Once I had kids, I'm not stopping. I'm calling 911 if, it, if I think it's an emergency and letting people with badges and vests take care of it. Now that my kids are older and they're back out, you know, again, things change. Yep. Um, I, this is, I'll do a little side note. I think that the chances of somebody um, needing and using uh, trauma care, some kind of, you know, first aid or trauma care is probably a higher probability than having to use a firearm. Mm. So I think if, if you're, if you're concerned with self-defense and self-preservation, go take a tactical combat casualty care course. Absolutely. So that was my little cheap plug. <laughs> and that, you know, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I was thinking, have I had to draw and use a gun in self-defense in my life thus far? No. Do I hope I have to? No. Knock on wood. Um, but I have had to respond to a couple. I mean, just not related to my duties in, in law enforcement, just as a regular Joe citizen driving down the road. Mm-hmm. Come across a handful of accidents, two of which were pretty pretty bad. And uh, the first one changed my life forever because I went, I was not prepared for that. Yeah. The second one I was a little bit better prepared for. Good stuff. Uh, do you feel like there's anything that we haven't 
covered in regards to cognitive stack that we need to do a little more justice on? Or, I mean, have we, we kind of got it all out there? You know, I think we've got it out there. I mean, it, it, it's going to be different from every person. I, I use that kind of arbitrary number of five, and that's that's from from thinking about the this process and from talking to shooters and putting it together. I think that number is a pretty decent number for most people. If you're a newer shooter, that number is not going to be five. If... Um, you know, if you just got fired from your job, that number's not going to be five. Um, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, that number's not going to be five. And so, yep. you know, I, I don't want anybody to lock on, well, I can do five things. It, it changes. As you age, it's probably going to start to reduce some. Um, and the higher your skills with, you know, movement trigger control and firearms manipulation the better you're going to be at processing those other things. Because even if you have, quote, five in the stack, um, if those other skills are not honed to perfection, it's still going to erode a little bit. It may not take care of the number, but your processing is not going to be quite as good. Yeah. So, um, no, I think, we, I think we've covered it. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting area. And, you know, some law enforcement agencies have... Um, skirted around the issue by doing testing on it where they have in force on force situations they will you know tell a recruit um, hey go through this door and there's going to be three people and uh, you know those three people um, two of them are going to be threats and they they evaluate how they how they respond um, you know I found that in my volunteering as a you know doing a volunteer for various different police agencies. Um, every once in a while, I can throw somebody off. Um, for instance, if I'm doing, um, you know, they're doing some type of skill, either report writing or interviewing or, you know, whatever they're supposed to be working on when they're in academy. I, I can identify if somebody will latch onto something and I'll give them a little bone and let them latch onto something and then they'll forget four other things. For instance, um, I just did, I think it was report writing for an academy. And I threw out there that my car was a 1980 Nova. And this one dude just kind of went off on, he's like, are you sure it's a 1980 Nova? And he missed, he didn't get my phone number. He didn't get my address. He didn't even know that I was the, well, the perpetrator of the crime mm. because he's so locked into a 1980 Nova. Yeah. How, how can that be? Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Right. You know, so he was all jacked up and, you know, the mm. facilitator caught, caught it and said, he threw you off because you were talking about this one car. I hope the guy's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, those are really good thoughts. A couple of things, uh, t I guess, to kind of wrap it up. Number one, uh, you got two boys. Uh, you got them involved in shooting at a fairly young age I mean, and, and shooting very competitively, I might add. And, uh, so I'm curious about your thoughts about uh, teaching our youth, uh, getting, you know, how, how does one, you know, what would be some of your suggestions or recommendations about getting young people involved in shooting uh, and maybe what some of your strategies are with that? Sure. You know, and, and again, it, it changes over the years. And I think my caveat before I say what I'm going to say is that every kid is different. Um, some kids are more responsible. Some kids are less responsible. Um, and so there has to be some acknowledgement that every kid is different. Um, you know, with my kids, I started them off 
basically with 22 pistols. Um, some people would kind of freak out, but pistols are easier to shoot and manipulate in rimfire than a rifle that's maybe too big for them. I'm not a proponent. I mean, I probably piss somebody off, but I'm not a proponent of the single shot bolt crickets and those stuff. You can use them for six months or whatever, and then they're done. Um, so I, I don't think it's a wise investment of limited resources. Um, but my boys do and, and did spend a good amount of time shooting airsoft and BB guns. Um, they shoot 22 pistol and 22 rifle. Um, five, six years old ish is when I started them. And it was literally a round in the magazine. Um, after we had gone through, here's the safety, here's the trigger, keep your finger off the trigger until the sights are on. And I drew the pictures of the sight picture, what it's supposed to look like. And, and that was, you know, the first time at the range was after we'd already talked about guns can be dangerous if they're not handled properly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I try not to ever say guns are dangerous. I try to say if not handled properly, it's the personal responsibility. Right. And that's a huge part. Um, so, you know, w when they go, th when they went through the process, one round in a magazine, they shoot it, they're fine. Then we went to two and then we went to three and it was paying attention. Um, so my boys have both shot the Rimfire Challenge World Championship a couple of times. And, you know, I was the match director and so I'm doing a lot of things. And one time my wife went with my two boys and so they were on a squad and one of the high level competitors that was on that squad came back and he said, you know, I was pretty freaked when I saw a single mom, what I assumed to be a single mom and two young boys on our squad. And I want to tell you that those were the safest two kids and your wife too, that I have ever seen on a range. And he goes, the trigger control there. I mean, when they weren't shooting targets, their finger was out. If somebody said something to them, they kept the gun pointed down range and turned their head and look and didn't turn the gun with them. You know, so those little things mm -hmm. are stuff that I had to stress with my boys as they grew, you know, and then I moved them, you know, to two, two threes and 30 carbines. Um, you know, after they had gone from rimfire, I went to centerfire rifle, not pistol yet. Once they got the centerfire rifle, down the 223 and 30 carbines even 9 millimeter carbines are fine but once they get those easy very easy to shoot weapons down then i started moving them to handguns and then shotguns and mm -hmm. so it's it's a progression um you know both of them can pretty much handle anything they're 13 and 15 and they can pretty much handle anything you know that's that's in the realm of a common arsenal that somebody might have um, skill levels are not all what they hopefully will eventually gain, but they, they both hunt. Um, you know, so we've gone pheasant hunting, we've gone elk hunting, you know, Blake turned, I think, I guess he turned 12 on November one and on November two, he shot his first deer. So cool. You know, they're handling firearms in a competitive realm. Um, they're handling in, them in a hunting realm. And that skill level continues to build. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I think, again, it, it depends on what your kid's like. I'm, I'm a big proponent of exposing your children 
to things that they may be interested in, but not forcing them. Mm. And that that goes with sports and arts and music and shooting and whatever sports. Um, you can overload them. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great advice. Second thing to wrap it up here is I, I told you I'd come back to it. Your thoughts on uh, trigger modifications, particularly on a defensive gun. So it's a, it's an interesting topic because there's a lot of um, people get emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Seeklander, I don't know which book it was, but he was writing a book and and I was going over it and I was reading some stuff and I came back and I said, Mike, I don't agree with this. And he's, you know, he basically said the old mantra of, you know, don't modify your triggers. And when Mike and I talked about it, we discussed it, he really came to the realization that he didn't believe it really either. And so he modified some sentences that were in his book. Um, there still is not a single case of a modified gun being any form of deciding factor in any case, whether it's civil or criminal. It comes back down to the four laws of gun safety. If you don't follow the four laws of gun safety, whether you've got a two-ounce trigger or a 20-pound trigger, it's a problem. Now, do I think you can modify a trigger too far? Probably, from a stress perspective. Right. But if your sights are on the target and your finger's on the trigger, you must have decided you are going to stop that threat. So who cares what whether it's a two-pound trigger or a four-pound trigger? If if you claim that, oh, I didn't mean to shoot, and you got a two-ounce trigger, you've already broken two laws of gun safety. Yeah, right. So my theory and my perspective is that in the training community, when we tell people you cannot handload your ammunition, you cannot modify your guns, if you do, there's going to be legal liability. I think we're doing a huge disservice to ourselves as a self-defense community. I think we're doing a huge disservice to the Second Amendment. And I think we're creating false liability. Because the only way that that liability becomes liability in a court of law is an expert witness says he made a mistake. So who's that expert witness going to be? Is it going to be Masad Ayub? Is it going to be Mike Seeklander? Is it going to be me? You know, I mean, these are all guys who have been in court. So <laughs> I, I think I think there's some mistakes have been made in that area. I think we need to roll back and think about it logically. If you follow the four lines of gun safety, if you only present the weapon to stop the threat, trigger mods don't matter. Hmm. Very, very interesting. You know, so uh, what you probably don't know is a couple of episodes ago, we had uh, Andrew Branca on on our podcast. Actually, that was last week. And Mike Seeklander was on our podcast the week before that. Um, and he's an attorney and uh, wrote the book, The Law of Self-Defense. And his thoughts are, don't do it. Because a prosecutor can, and not that it will matter, but that they can argue that it had something to do with, you know, how that shooting turned out. And, and and I've seen that. I actually got threatened that I was going to be banned from a forum because I told an attorney he was wrong, uh, basically on the same topic. Yeah. An attorney or a prosecutor 
can say anything they want. You have to understand that the attorney in the legal system is an advocate for their client. If they're a prosecutor, they're an advocate for the state to prove a case against you or the federal government or whatever. Yeah. The defense attorney is an advocate for you. So if, an, if a prosecutor says, well, Mr. Bowman, you modified this trigger so that you could kill people faster. <laughs> if you've got a competent attorney, he's going to go, prove to me how that has any effect on the fact that Mr. Bowman neutralized a threat that was threatening to his life. It's a non-starter. Right. And, you know, I, I've testified in court over 80 times. And I understand that when I'm sitting on the, the stand, there's an attorney who's trying to get me to say something that either contradicts what I've said before or something that's beneficial to his client. Mm -hmm. So when I get asked a question, I'm thinking and processing what are the implications of the answer. At the same time, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to worry about the lies. And I'm a huge advocate of that. So, mm. you know, attorneys have... Um, <laughs> I have some personal friends who are attorneys and I mean, they're good friends. They're great guys, but you have to understand to some degree that attorneys have significantly altered the United States from a product liability perspective, from a legal perspective, from a tort perspective, they make their money being in court. So while I, I understand that perspective from a, from a, gun perspective from an expert perspective as far as being able to design and understand how firearms work irrelevant mm. and this is great it's timely because i mean we just had that conversation a couple episodes ago you know and and now we're hearing a different opinion and i i love it i eat I, it up maybe you should do a uh, something <laughs> where you get like a couple of panels a couple we, attorneys and a couple of gun guys and we should have you Come in. Do and, a mock and, court. Yeah. <laughs> Do a little debate or something. That sounds like fun. So uh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, before I let you go, one thing we always uh, do with guests on the podcast, uh, well, two, two things, is I ask for a pick of the week because every week we, we have a pick. I'll have a pick, too, that I'll, I'll add in here. Uh, and so it, it could be anything, literally anything. I mean, if it's gun-related, it's perfect. Um, if it's an accessory to, to a gun product, product, if it's a book that you read recently that you want to recommend, there's that. Uh, and then also just what's, what's next for you? What, what do you have coming up? Uh, pick of the week. You know, uh, we've been going through some, some things with our parents aging and my wife made me chicken divan and candy apple pie for dinner last night. And that candy apple pie, if you've never had a candy apple pie, mm. go get you one. It, Awesome. So that's my pick. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what's coming up next? Uh, so I, I, I'm always looking at technology and technology transfer. And so uh, you know Drew Bolt, and I assume you know Dean Graves. So uh, he, mm -hmm. those two guys and I are in this process um, that we are working on a new, not a new, um, a technology transfer when it comes to uh, stimulating oil wells to increase production. Mm. Um, so it's it's very intriguing. It's uh, it's challenging. Um, and uh, five years from now, if it works, 
will be famous. <laughs> Maybe infamous, who knows? Huh. Um, so it's it's yeah. it's very interesting. It's 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 cool stuff. I like learning new things. Yeah. And that's cool because you got three got three shooters. Uh and you guys are working on oil related technology. Yep. Yep. That's funny. So. Very cool. Awesome. Well, just to get it out there, my pick this week, uh in full disclosure, you were kind enough to sponsor me as a shooter. Um, have a few of your, your, your products and, uh, it's going to be the, the SSL and, and, and any of those uh, shotgun loader, uh, loading products. Cool. Um, my chest rig, love the chest rig, dig the chest rig. Um, the, uh, pinwheel on the belt. I mean, you, you obviously you can't do, do three gun without having the ability to load some shotgun shells. Yep. So especially if you don't shoot open, especially, I mean, you might have a stage here and there. If you're an open guy, you can get through that without having to reload but and do you, do you ever do you know what SSL stands for? I I did once. I looked stupid it up. Stupid shotgun loading. There, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Your twins loading system is is brilliant. Uh works works very well, very well designed. And so obviously I'm kissing a little butt right now, but uh, awesome. it's a great pick. So it's never been a pick on the podcast. Go check out Carbon Arms and uh the shotgun loading uh products. Um and also like you mentioned earlier, you've got the feather, the carbon feather handguard. Carbon feather handguard. Um, saw somebody shooting with one of those at uh, the governor's match. Yeah, we have. Actually, we on have. my squad, I think. Um, sure. Yeah, I think his name, uh, Tim. Tim, he was on my squad, and he was shooting with one of those. And then, uh, what was the other thing I was thinking about? Actually, um, the carbon feather handguard is, right now, as we're talking, is being filmed as it's going on to the wit machine integrally suppressed 308 barrel for the Ruger Precision. Wow. So we worked with um, Alan at Machine Gun Tours, and we're going to create a whole carbon fiber. um, The handguard's really the same as the AR-15 handguard anyway, Uh but we've extended it so it's 22 inches long, so it looks aesthetically correct on that gun. Mm. And then we're going to work on a uh, making them a, just, just for that gun, a sling bipod mount system for the handguard. Very cool. So, yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. So good things coming from Carbon Arms and Mark Passmanic. Thanks again for uh, doing this with me today. It's been my pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed it. So there you go. I really hope, in fact, I'm confident you enjoyed listening to this interview together with myself and with Mark from Carbon Arms. Uh, wealth of knowledge in there. I know it's one of those, I've said this a bunch recently. I mean, we've had some great guests on the podcast and Mark is another one of those where you just almost got to go back and re-listen to the episode because you just can't get it all in one sitting. So I know it was a good one. It was for me. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. It just has some final analysis. I mean, this is the Concealed Carry Podcast. And you know we are passionate about educating and preparing people to be able to defend themselves to the best of their ability. You know, to be ready for those situations that might arise. We never know when they will arise, if they will arise. But we know if they do. You can be ready for that. At least you can take steps to prepare yourself to be the best that you can be. And one of those things is I really hope that you'll take to heart this idea of your cognitive stack. It's limited. You can't process too much at once. I know intuitively we probably already get that, but put it into context as far as your training is concerned, as far as your skills are concerned. 
recognize that if your you know simple simple act like drawing out of the holster is not just really nailed down solid if it doesn't happen automatically if you don't get it done uh, consistently every time if you're not able to get it done quickly then you've got some work to do you can't be thinking about how to draw that gun out of the holster and at the same time thinking about how you're going to eliminate this threat when you've got so many other variables you need to be thinking about. And that goes too for getting that target or that gun into the hand, getting it up on target, and going through all the basic fundamentals of, of shooting and working that gun in such a way that you can eliminate that threat. We really want to maximize our cognitive abilities so that we can focus in a gunfight on what's truly important, and that is that threat what that threat is doing, and what I need to be doing to address and take care of that threat. So, you know, this episode, this interview just really expanded my mind, and I'm constantly thinking now, what can I do to take certain things that up till now have required cognitive processing and make those become more automatic? Because I know it'll make me a better gunfighter. And I know it will do the same for you too. And if you're into competition shooting as well, well, there you go. We heard, you heard a lot about that in uh, these, uh, this part one and part two of uh, this interview with Mark. And so, great stuff. I know I enjoyed it. A reminder that today's episode is brought to you by Carbon Arms. Mark uh, has really done a great job putting together top-notch quality product, products that you're going to want to check out. So go to carbonarms.us. Give it a shot. I know you'll love them. Carbon Arms actually has been so kind to sponsor me as a competitive shooter. And because I love their products, I reached out to them and asked if they would take me on. And Mark was so kind to do so. I'm thankful to him for that. I know that you'll like his products as well. So go check out carbonarms.us. I know you'll enjoy and so with that, once again, this is Riley with the Concealed Carry Podcast here in Milwaukee, uh, attending the NRA Carry Guard Expo. Look forward to touching base with you all again on Monday, where Jacob and I will sit down together and record an episode where we highlight all of the, the great uh, things we saw here at the Carry Guard Expo. Uh, so there you have it. I'm going to wrap it up for the weekend. Take care. Just a reminder to all of you out there. You've been hearing it a bunch lately. This is really becoming, this is our new thing, and we take it seriously. We want you to train right. We want you to train often. We want you to train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.